Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Sons of Liberty podcast. My name is Sam Mealy, and oh, Hunter Young is not in studio today. But regardless, we wanted to bring you guys a special episode coming exclusively to you guys here on the Sons of Liberty podcast. Uh, we hosted back in June of this year, Chloe Cole, who is a famed detransitioner. She's spoken all across the country, been on Tucker Carlson. She just spoke at uh, Turning Point USA's AmFest this, uh, in Phoenix, Arizona in December. And she's an incredible person. It has an incredible story. It's very sad, but it's super inspiring. We got to host her for the Teens Against Gender Mutilation Rally here on Cape Cod. And we had a, it was great success. 300 people, 16 protesters, but who cares because they didn't cause anything. They're just playing cards in the background. We had a great time regardless. And while she was here, I got to interview her. So I wanted to bring you guys that interview right now because I posted it on my personal YouTube channel a bit ago. And I want, but I wanted to bring it to our wonderful watchers and listeners here on the Sons of Liberty podcast. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy this exclusive interview with the famed detransitioner and someone I have come to call a personal friend, Chloe Cole. Enjoy. Hey everybody, my name is Sam Mealy. I'm with uh, Turning Point USA at Barnstable County here in Massachusetts. And today I'm joined by Chloe Cole for a lovely conversation we're about to have. How are you doing, Chloe? I'm doing good. How are you? Good, good. So you're from California and right now we're in New England for those watching online. Are you, uh, how many times have you been to New England? Is this like first time or? Um, I've been to a few states in the area. I can't really call which ones right now because I've been yeah. traveling for the past it's like, it's not very so. not very conservative so not a lot of reasons to come up here <laughs> um yeah so all the more reasons to come up here well yeah get the word out yeah so why don't you tell us your story i mean like so you were a detransitioner um former transgender child you're for those who don't know chloe coles i mean she's been on tucker carlson jordan peterson all over the place so why don't you like tell us your story in a, like a wikipedia page fashion something like that yeah so i'm a detransitioner meaning that I went through a gender transition, including a social transition and a medical transition. And I'm biologically female, but I identified as a male for some time. And after a few years of going through this process, I decided that I didn't want to follow through with it anymore because, well, a big part of it was that, like, I realized I, wa I wanted to have kids one day and that this is something that would directly interfere with that. Mm -hmm. And I also had a lot of trauma and other issues in my life that weren't really being addressed during the, uh, the consultations for, um, for my gender dysphoria mm -hmm. or the treatment of it. And I, in the end, I really just wanted to embrace my identity as a woman. And I started the process of transitioning at 12 with a social transition, meaning that I changed my name. Um, I started telling like my, my family and some of my friends at school that I wanted to be referred to as a boy and as their son, their brother, rather than a daughter, a sister, and so on. And at 13 was when I started medical interventions, which were... Um, Lupron, which is a puberty suppressant medication. And a month after I was put on that, I was put on testosterone. And at 15, um, the summer after my sophomore year of high school, 
was when I underwent the double mastectomy and my breasts were removed. And 16 years old, I was 16 when I decided that I, that I should stop transitioning. Wow. So what was the process like for, um, first I want to ask about the, uh, the actual transitioning and then the detransitioning afterwards, but what was the process like, medically speaking? Like how did the hospital um, guide you through transition? Did you go to the hospital saying, I want to transition? Or did you go to them and then they said, have you considered transitioning? What was that process like? Yeah, so after I came out to my mom and dad, they, I mean, they wanted to be supportive of me, but they didn't really know what to do about this because, I mean, they never saw, they never heard any of my older siblings saying any of this. And they saw naturally that it was a mental health issue. And they decided like they wanted to get help from the professionals. And I guess their expectation was that my mental health issues that were causing me to feel this way would have been sorted out. And that after that, um, there would be a bit of a waiting period. And once I hit 18 years old, then I would be able to make the decision as to whether I'd transition or not. But that's kind of the complete opposite of what happened actually. Uh, at the time, I wouldn't necessarily say that I was being pushed by anybody in particular into transitioning. I was the one pushing for it really because I thought that it was the only choice that I had, that it was the only treatment that I had for this condition and that somehow I really was a boy instead of a girl. Mm. And I held on really strongly to this belief. And my parents were getting concerned because of this. They didn't really understand why I wanted to do this so badly. And so they turned to my doctors. They asked like, why, why does she want to do this, do this so badly? Like, why don't we have another option? Why can't she wait? Why can't we wait until she's an adult and more more capable of making a permanent decision like this? Like, what's what are what are the what are the odds that she's going to regret this? And these are all pretty reasonable questions. Yeah. And they got pretty unreasonable responses back. Like, the doctors told them, "Well, there's a reason why she's pushing for this so much. She knows exactly what she wants, and this is who she is." And it's your responsibility as her parents to embrace this. If you don't affirm her, then it's very likely that she's going to kill herself. More likely than, it's more likely that she'll regret going through puberty than she will going through the treatments. So looking back on that, do you think that when they said it's more likely that if you don't transition, you'll end up committing suicide, was there any basis to that was there was it a was there any statistical evidence or did they or later did you look back and realize hey they actually lied to me lied to my parents i mean historically before the affirmative model of care was in place most of the time they would just allow the children to to be as they are without any intervention and they would naturally outgrow their gender dysphoria Anywhere from about like 60 to 90% of the time. Wow. And we weren't informed of this. In fact, I mean, I don't think, I don't recall them ever asking me if I actually was suicidal over this. And I wasn't. I wasn't suicidal until after a few years of transitioning. 
but um, I think I don't I don't think I thought that the outcome of me not transitioning was going to be death but I wasn't sure of what would happen if I weren't allowed to it was more like I had like a fear of the unknown yeah, but I mean, you were a kid. Like you can't, you can't blame yourself. You know, right. and and going forward, and kind of looking to the future, how would you, you know, as you're kind of an up and coming star in this cultural arena, and talking about this issue of transgenderism and sexuality, and helping youth deal um, with gender dysphoria or you know what used to be called um, gender identity disorder, how do you think going forward you can help young people? You know, when when you're older in like 10, 15 years you know, the kids that are one, two, and three are going to be your age now, and, and they're going to be going through the same thing issues you're going through. Look, like, when you're older and counseling younger people, how would you, or maybe counseling parents, like, how would you guide, um, how would you guide a child through the situation you went through? I mean, I think a big part of the problem is we are now pathologizing the crap out of a natural developmental process. We're making puberty into like some sort of plague almost. Hmm. We're telling these kids like, oh no, you can't, like your body is the issue here and you're not strong enough to be able to deal with these natural changes. Hmm. And we're telling them like, we're telling these patients, these kids and their parents that they can just opt out of it. They can just take puberty blockers and then after that, they're, they're completely reversible, so you can just take them right off of it, and their puberty will resume as normal, which isn't true. I mean, once you're on any of these treatments, really, they're not reversible at all. And there's no guarantee that after starting on a medication like Lupron, that puberty will resume as normal or even start back up again, never. Wow. But a problem that a lot of these kids have is that, I mean, many of them come from broken homes or they're being bullied at school and they don't really have much in the way of a community around them. Like they're not really close to their family. They don't go to church and a lot of them are addicted to the internet and to sort, to sort of feel, fill in that, um, that community that they lack. And it leads to them entering like little niche rabbit holes like this that kind of feed on the minds of children who are, naturally vulnerable. Yeah. yeah, talk about the uh, the aspect of the internet playing a role in your original transition, because I remember you in other interviews, you talking about how um, it was less the education system and more use the internet that inf that yeah. pushed you to this. Can you yeah, talk about true. that? Yeah, um, that's true. In school, and I mean, I graduated high school just last year, mm -hmm. Things like sexuality or transgenderism or identity were never ever talked about in my class, ever. It was, I learned about this completely from the internet and it was my biggest influence in my decision to transition. I mean, I wouldn't have known what transitioning even was were it not for my presence on the internet. And I wasn't really directly interacting with people in the trans community for a long time until maybe about like midway through my medical transition. But I first discovered it through uh, 
I guess little communities that that you could call fandoms, which are like uh, like based around series like uh, like video games or cartoons or shows or anime. Okay. And through a lot of these communities, I noticed that like there were a lot of people who would talk about their personal lives, about their uh, their sexuality or their gender identity, and I started to see more and more posts that were specifically oriented around like sexuality or or transitioning and i was around like 11 or 12 at the time when i was first being introduced to this stuff and it was really interesting to me because i'd never really seen anything like this before like there were all these new terms to describe yourself all these like colorful flags and it was all about self-discovery and it was so seemingly like, bright and cheery and also like I was at an age where I was starting to naturally question what kind of person I was what sort of role I was going to fill in the world yeah it's natural it was, everybody goes through that yeah yeah so I started to wonder like well at first it was my sexuality I kind of switched between different labels like bisexual pansexual and the like and then it felt like it just wasn't enough. Like it wasn't really applicable to me. And it was kind of like, well, I mean, I don't necessarily feel like I'm a girl. You know, I don't really fit in with my, uh, my older sisters or my, uh, or with my female cousins or peers. And I don't really even know what it means to be a girl. Maybe that means that I'm not completely female or maybe I'm non-binary. And then eventually it just became, there's no way that I'm a girl. Like it's, I think it's clear that I'm actually a boy and that's why I'm, that's why I'm so tomboyish. That's why I get along with the opposite sex more. That's why I feel more attached to my dad and my older brothers. And that's why I play video games and dress like them. And I mean, really it was all based off of stereotypes, but Interesting. I mean, as, as a kid, when you think of a man or a woman, that's really all you think about. Yeah. It's not about like genitalia or chromosomes or anything like you that. You think about a dress versus like a suit or something <laughs> like that, yeah. I feel like if I had been raised uh, with like a strict belief system and if my parents hadn't stopped bringing me to church when I was like four or five, I probably would have had a lot more structure in my life. And I would have, I probably would have understood like I was made the way that I was for a reason yeah. and that it was, it's okay to be a girl, even if it's yeah. not the easiest. That's interesting talking about like a worldview, you know, you're, you're, you're saying if, if, if I was born in a uh, in a certain worldview, I may not have gone down these roads. Yeah. Now, to the average, um, I think transgender who is still where you used to be, um, they might they might say, "Well, that's that's you know, live and let live." That sort of philosophy. Mm -hmm. you live and let live. Why your your parents shouldn't force you what to believe? Yeah. Well, well n now that you're on the other side of it, and you kind of have a more, um, you know. 10,000 foot view, can it, can, you can kind of like look down and see everything, all the different, you know, choices you made or maybe didn't make. Um, how does, how, how do you think you could respond to someone who says like, 
oh, parents shouldn't tell their kids what to believe. They should just let them grow up and believe what they want. Like, what, what do you think you'd say to those, to those people? I think the live and let live philosophy is kind of selfish. Like, to see somebody suffering and to not give them any guidance, to just let them do as they please for the sake of their freedom and putting that over their well-being, it's pretty dangerous. And you could say that right there is the role of a parent is to look past the, the here and now and see the consequences of your right. decisions and, I and mean, then try to help you guide, guide you around those roadblocks. Right. And children don't really have like a fully formed sense of reality. They can't really differentiate between reality and fantasy. And that's why they, that's exactly why they need that guidance from, from an adult. Mm -hmm. And I mean, my parents did the best with what they could, but my doctors, I mean, it really feels like they took advantage of that, mm. of that part of me. Mm. And a lot, of, a lot of these activists and a lot of people within the transgender community in general, they call themselves like atheists or agnostic or even like anti-theists. But this desire to, to transition to be the opposite sex, this belief that the reason why you feel so so alienated from people of your own sex or why you feel so wrong in your own body is really grappling with your lack of a belief system. Hmm. And it is kind of a religion on its own, I think. Talk about that. How, how is transgenderism like its own religion? I mean, well, for one, the belief in a gender identity, it's kind of similar to the belief in a soul in that it's like this entity that is a part of you, but it's separate from your body, and yet somehow it still shapes you as a person. And a lot of it is very ideological in nature. Like a lot of the, the treatments and the ideas around it in general aren't really based in science at all. Like they say that the biggest argument in favor of transitioning is that it reduces the rate of suicide from gender dysphoria. Yeah. But, I mean, the studies that say this are conducted very poorly with really poor patient follow-up. Okay. And it doesn't really take into account the fact that a lot of these people, these patients who do present with gender dysphoria, have other psychiatric conditions that are very likely causing mm. this suicidal ideation. So you talked about how, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but how after... Your parents were said that were told that if you don't transition, you would experience suicidal ideation. But in reality, when you did transition, you began you actually began to experience suicidal ideation. Is that yes. correct? That's interesting to me. I mean, talk about that. I why do you think why do you think that is? What do, did the doctors know that? Do you think do you think it was malicious? Like, it's just that's just so uh, interesting to me. I, I suppose. Well, down the line, they did. Um, I think part of it was just that I had unresolved psychiatric issues that weren't being treated until about halfway through my transition. And the way that they went about that was just giving me more medication. Like they started giving me antidepressants. They started putting me on, on medication for my ADHD diagnosis. And it just kept making me worse, the constant raising of the doses and changing between different medications really made it difficult for me to, to function daily. And transitioning itself is pretty difficult, especially like navigating the um, socialization. Um, 
because I was raised as a girl, I wasn't really aware of how like male socialization worked. And I didn't really have anybody guiding me in th throughout that. So I kind of just had to figure it out on my own. And I mean, I was still a biological female. Like I was on testosterone and I looked like pretty much any other boy my age, save for the fact that I was a little bit shorter, but I was like 14, 16 years old. So that was pretty normal at the time. But I mean, physically, I still wouldn't be on par with a man. Hmm. And I was putting myself in male spaces. Like uh, I was using like the male restroom facilities at school and the locker rooms. And I was scared that somebody might find out that I'm not actually male. And like I could get like caught being in the bathroom during class time when nobody was around and sexually assaulted or worse. Mm. And this, this is a lot of, uh, this added to a lot of uh, anxiety in my daily life. Um, and it was also just kind of lonely. Because um, at least in my experience, like, while I was being perceived as a guy, I didn't really have as much room to talk about like my personal hardships and what I was going through. And I mean, under the influence of testosterone, it was also a lot harder to, um, I guess kind of process emotions like uh, certain negative emotions like um, sadness and loneliness. And it was a lot harder to cry. And once, uh, I was able to cry. Like sometimes I could do it for hours at a time and I would get absolutely no release from it. Mm. I'd feel just the same afterward. Mm. Well, so it's almost like the estrogen in a woman's body is that when you cry, it actually helps release a lot of emotion. And it does. Yeah. And I mean, my hormonal profile was also kind of a natural, even for like a biological male, because I had ample testosterone, but no estrogen in my body really. Which, I mean, even men have a small amount of estrogen in their body. Is there any, do you think there's any redeemable value to the gender affirming care industry because as, a, as a whole? Or is it all, is it rotten to the core? Well, I think it's evil to, do, to be doing this to kids at all. And if I'm being honest, I don't think that transitioning really benefits anyone. Because even if they don't, even if an individual who goes through transition um, doesn't regret it and they're satisfied with the results, it's still destroying their body. Mm -hmm. And they will never actually ever be of the opposite sex. These doctors who are performing these surgeries and administering these treatments are lying to patients and they're not giving them the information that they need. Is it, is it out of fear? Is it a money incentive? Is it an ideology that's driving this? Like... I think it's all of those. Okay. Hmm. Um, I mean, transitioning is pretty profitable yeah. for the pharmaceutical for the pharmaceutical companies. Um, I mean, the expenses really rack up because not only are you taking these, this, uh, well, the injections are about once per week to once every other week. The pill you take daily, and there's also other forms of it like the uh, like dermal patch gel and such for the for the hormones, and. I mean, you're supposed to be taking these over the course of your entire lifetime. Wow. 
And the complications that result from these, obviously you have to, you have to medicate for those as well. Yeah. Especially the general surgeries are just plain barbaric. Mm -hmm. And they almost always result in some sort of complication. And it's pretty, pretty common for patients to have to get like a revision surgery or two or more. Well, yeah. I mean, from, from my understanding, like a, a gender affirming, you know, uh, hysterectomy is, um, I mean, it's, it's a complete removal of, of the uterus, the fallopian tubes, everything. And you know, we're in Massachusetts, Boston Children's Hospital is the, is the first children's hospital in the nation to, to have started a gender affirming care clinic for minors where they're doing gender affirming hysterectomies on minors. And they deny it, but I think that I don't believe them personally. <laughs> but I mean, they're definitely doing so, they're, in, they're encouraging social transition. They're saying that, that kids know, their, know and can express their sexuality from birth and from even inside the womb, which is, which is crazy to me. I've noticed that like a lot of people will say that these treatments are just not happening in children, especially the surgeries, which I mean, I've, <laughs> Living proof. I've been to three years. <laughs> but they'll kind of shift the goalposts when you start talking about banning these, these treatments mm. in children. And which is, which is kind of ironic because if no kids are supposed to be going under this, then why should we be worried about banning it if it's not happening in the first place? That's true, yeah. And then they'll say a lot of time that, well, they'll sometimes do it in rare cases when the doctors deem that it's necessary for their health, yeah. whatever the hell that means. <laughs> well, I see a comparison there to the way, just interesting, I guess, like the, the way abortion used to be advertised. It used, the, the, in the 90s, it was, um, it was safe, but safe and rare. Like abortions, like yeah. only when you need it. Like I know it doesn't happen a lot. It's like we want to make sure everybody's safe and that it happen, doesn't happen a lot. And it, now it seems like we're in that stage with, the, with gender affirming care. It's like, well, we're only doing it if it needs to. Like it's really not happening at all. But I mean, if it is, then it's only because like they really needed it. And I'm curious, do you, where do you see the, the, the industry, the gender affirming care industry going in the next 10 to 15 years? Do you think it, it's going to get stronger and worse? Do you think it'll peter out? Like, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Okay. Um, I mean, a lot of people are really starting to wake up to this. I don't think the fight is going to last much longer. I, my estimate is that it's going to be about anywhere between like two to seven years before these treatments are completely banned in children. Mm -hmm. And then actually, um, once, once that's over, the concern for children will shift over to the adult patients who are being affected by this. Mm. And the standards of care for those patients will be revised. Yeah. And I mean, I don't believe in a total ban for, for medical transition, not in adults. Um, I think that a select few patients who have been through like a rigorous psychological evaluation and have any other any other conditions like ruled out and treated mm -hmm. and have been properly informed about the risks of these procedures mm -hmm. i think that they should be able to to have a choice in in whether they go through it or not yeah well the difference there is uh, the words rigorous psychological evaluations they're not being rushed into it they're given ample time they're given counseling um and then from there i mean they're adults they can 
they can do what they want once but once they're fully informed whereas you you were rushed into it a lot when it comes to when it comes to it seems to be when it when it comes to minors they're they're rushed into it um yeah yeah i mean the, the reason why is that a lot of these doctors and activists say that the younger you transition the the better because the less secondary sex characteristics will pop up and therefore the less dysphoria they'll experience as an adult. But they don't really acknowledge that it's actually more dangerous to transition as a minor. You said like, I, I like that you may, gave, gave like um, a game plan. You said two to seven years, it'll probably get worse before it gets better. When you give people a game plan, it can really, like um, people on the conservative side who are generally the people who are um, agreeing with you and try helping you, um, it, it really kind of helps them focus in with action points. Like, okay, if it's you know two to seven years, it's going to get worse before it gets better. You know, we're trying to ban it for on children in state by state. I think it's like 18 states so far mm -hmm. that have that have banned this. Um, it, it really gives them a frame of reference to then move forward and actually, you know, call their representatives and go to town meetings and talk about these issues with their friends at, you know, at school, at church, um, in, in the public square. Um, so talk about what you want to accomplish in this, in this space. Like in the next two to seven years, what do you want to see change? Like what, what, do you, what, what fruit do you, want to, do you want to see blossom from the seeds you're planting right now? I mean, obviously I want childhood transition to stop completely. It's never okay, even social transition is pretty detrimental to, to a kid's health. And I mean, we haven't even fully- Are you stereotyping people, Chloe? Shame. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's more, stereotyp it's more stereotypical to tell somebody that because they're a man who likes presenting femininely wearing dresses or because they're a woman who is masculine and competitive that they're actually the opposite sex. Yeah, that, that is kind of stereotyping. It's weird. <laughs> but ironic, yeah, I also ironic. want the, the standards of care in general for adult and um, child patients who have gender dysphoria to be revised so that it's not just a one-size-fits-all model where everybody who has gender dysphoria and wants to transition should. Hmm. Because not all of them should. Yeah, no. What do you think are some other alternatives? Because um, I know you've, you know, you've, um, you were talking about how there were some other like underlying psychological conditions that weren't treated, and you, you know, like I keep saying, you were rushed into the transition. So, how do you think? You know, let, let's talk about the future. You know, if if we're talking legislatively for children, um, if a, if a child. Like let's say in Tennessee, where gender affirming care for kids was just been banned. Mm. Um, let's say a child is experiencing gender, gender dysphoria in a public high school in Tennessee. He goes to his teacher, his parents, and he's like, hey, I don't feel comfortable in my own body. I feel like I'm a girl. Like now that it's banned and they don't have the option in Tennessee to go down the rabbit hole uh, or, or the trail of transgenderism, what do you think is the next like step in counseling to actually help a kid through gender dysphoria? I mean... I appreciate that there's an effort being made to prevent this from happening to kids ever again, but we also need to address what happens after patients detransition or if we're going to remove that option completely from, from these child patients, then we need to replace it with something else. And what that thing needs to be, I think, is psychotherapy. Because like I said, a lot of these patients have comorbid issues, a lot of traumas often from abuse from a family member or like sexual abuse or assault. 
and they need real help. They don't need to be told that, yes, you are actually of the opposite sex. Yes, the problem is your own body and not the way that you feel about it. They need to be told that they're enough, that their body is not the issue, that they, they need to have their other problems worked out through and they need to have a sense of community that doesn't just, doesn't just come from like an internet subculture or the transgender community. It needs to come from their family, from, the, from their peers, from say like clubs or sports or extracurriculars at school. And they need to be working towards something, especially as part of a team. That's one big thing that I was missing throughout a lot of my childhood that I was seeking. Well, it, it really, that really resembles like what you're talking about as, as far as cycle, um, what did you call it? The psychoevaluation, psychotherapy, there we psychotherapy, go. Psychotherapy, yes. It, the, the, um, the solution you were offering sounds awful, an awful lot like a, a Christian worldview. Isn't that funny? You know, you were just talking about like you wish you had a belief structure growing up um, more than you did. Um, and I just... I don't know. I, I guess I don't really have a question. I just think that's that's an interesting comparison. It's like, hey, when it, it doesn't have to be like a a mean religious whatever um, that the left thinks we're trying to push on our kids. It can just be like, hey, do this if you want to have a good life, and don't do this because it you won't have as good of a life. So mm. it's it's more like we're we're looking out for these kids. Yeah. And we want to raise them up in a good worldview. In a we're good giving life. them another option, the best option. Yeah. I mean, they're a lot of the time the parents of these kids or the kids themselves are presented with this false dichotomy of there only being two choices. Um, either you transition or you're very likely going to die. Mm. But it's not that way. There's hope. And that's not a choice that they should feel like they have to make. What do you think... Uh, what, do you, what do you think is one positive thing that has come out of your story? Obviously, you know, it, it, it invokes a lot of emotion. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's sad, you know, rightfully so. But in, in over the past couple of years that you've come out with your story, what is like one really cool thing that has developed since starting to speak out about your story? It's kind of hard to choose just one thing because there's a lot of good things that have come out of it. Like, I've gotten my fair share of like people threatening me or telling me that, I'm wrong, that it was all my fault, that I should just leave this all to myself and stop putting my experience on the trans community or whatever they want to mm -hmm. say about it. But I've gotten infinitely more support than I have any sort of hate or, or anything like that. Um, and even for my transition, I think one thing that I can really appreciate about it is that I can sympathize with men a little bit more easily especially like young men and a lot of their struggles like I, I used to think that like boys just had it better in every way and that the grass was greener on the other side but it's it's difficult that's funny. and <laughs> and it's not it's not easy being a man and I feel like in general we've kind of forgotten just how important men are both sexes are really in their their natural role in the world and we've kind of been pitted against each other like there's almost like a like a battle between the sexes about who's who's better but really we're we're made different 
but in a way we're equal. We just complement each other. Mm. Well, yeah, I, I love that you touch on the, you know, the fact that masculinity is really overlooked and demonized. Like, why, why, do, you, why do you think masculinity is demonized in our society, in our, in our post-Christian society, like in a, in a secular atheist society? Why, why is masculinity? Because if, if we live in an atheist society, then, you know, atheism is all about just like whoever is the most powerful it gets to be in charge. And that's like postured as like a good thing. And power is generally attributed to male attributes, like as being like strong and like really um, stubborn. And so, but why do you think masculinity is demonized in, in culture? I think part of it is just kind of like the attempt to break down the roles of either sex okay. in general. I mean, we've really downplayed the importance of masculinity in, in men and femininity in women. Well, I think it's like a, to compare men and women is like, you know, comparing an apple and an orange. Like they're, they're two, they're equal, but they're, they're two completely great, different entities. They're, yeah, they're, they're different. equal, but they're, they're beautiful in their own ways, you know? So to compare like pow, the, you know, the power of a man and the power of a woman, like they mean two very different things for each, for either of the sexes. And, they, and they're meant to be that way. Like God created that for a reason. So, man, I just, I think that's really cool. And it, you, need, in, you need, for a society to function, you need the, uh, the beautiful differences that come along with that. And it seems like the, the radical transgender left hates that because they hate, the, they hate the created order because they don't, they see freedom as, as throwing off all rules. When in fact, yes. like you've been saying, some rules are actually there to keep you safe. And the, there are parameters in place to actually help you thrive. And, but when you, but when you, um, when you break those barriers, you're actually in bondage, which is like, it, it's like a paradox. You know, you, you do whatever you want and, but that actually makes you enslaved, you know? But if you, if you do what you ought, you actually are free. Hmm. You know, it's just like a paradox. Yeah. Well, uh, controversy seems to follow you everywhere you go. Um, and I'm sure it's very tempting to become discouraged or, maybe unhappy or, or just, or just burnt out sometimes. And like we all get, is there, um, where do you find peace in the midst of like your crazy life? What's like the one thing you can like just disconnect and settle down and feel at peace? Um, yeah, I mean, it does get stressful at times traveling so often and having to like be, being a plane in the airport all the time, all the waiting that comes with that. And then, actually being at these events and like being on stage and having all these eyes on me and these ears listening to me. Mm -hmm. But there's still value in all of that, even if it causes me stress. It's, I also, I also try to take things slow when I can and just go out in nature, just go on, out on walks and see family and friends when I can and just enjoy myself. And when I'm when I'm not working, I like to I like doing illustration, um, mostly like character illustration. I also uh, I'm starting to get a little bit into clothing design. Oh, cool! Nice. And I think one day I want to run my own brand. That's really cool. Is it like what what type of clothing? Is it just kind of a broad idea at this point, or is it, have you have you sketched out clothes you'd like to make? Um, I have made a few concepts, but the idea is I think I want to go for something that's futuristic looking 
with uh, different substyles that are like based off of like different like internet subcultures or some that are more like practical and more towards like a I guess like being outdoors or working and the idea kind of is like I want to inspire a sense of hope for the future of the world mm. I mean we always hear about how all these uh these new technologies are scary and how how awful the future is going to be but I really don't think it's going to be all that bad I mean I think stuff like AI, we're going to be able to find ways to regulate it, but also use it in such a way that complements humanity rather than, rather than dominating it. Interesting. That's really cool. So illustrations are like, um, you know, for me, I'm into music. Uh, is that, do you, do you enjoy, uh, what, what kind of music are you into? I kind of have a broad taste in music. I listen to a little bit of everything, like, uh, like 60s to maybe more like 70s to 90s uh, pop and uh, some electronic stuff. Um, a little bit of everything, really. That's great. Well, I just, I thought that was important to bring up those mm -hmm. questions just to get to know the Chloe that maybe not everybody gets to know. Um, as, as we're wrapping up here, I, um, let's move. I, I think it's cool if we move to like you know, the conservatives themselves, like they, they want to know, they want to do the right thing. They, they, they love your story. They love you. They want to help you. Um, but there, it can, but, it, but, can, but it can be scary. You know, like, like I said, controversy tends to follow you wherever you go. You know, you've got protesters at your events that can be intimidating to a lot of conservatives who, who have that live and let live mentality or don't want to kind of, don't want to stir up the nest. So, you know, when, when you have protests, um, you know, the left loves to name call. So when you have these protesters and they're name calling, um, it can be really frightening to um, decent people who don't, who obviously aren't, you know, racist or transphobes or sexist, but they get called these names. And obviously, I'm sure you've been called every name in the book. So oh, yeah. <laughs> how would you like encourage the conservatives, the conservative movement to be like, it's okay, you don't have to be controlled by this. What, what would you say to, what would you say to them? If there's one thing that I learned from being face to face with the opposition and a lot of these, these protesters, it's that almost 99% of the time their, their bark is worse than their bite. They almost never do anything. And I mean, it's terrifying to go out there and have people screaming in your face and threatening your job, your family, whatever you have, yeah. but I think this is an issue that everybody should be fighting for because this is something that's going to, it already is affecting thousands of families and children and even entire institutions, like especially education and healthcare. And it's not something that we can stay quiet about anymore. Well, thank you, Chloe for this interview. This has been really fun. Yeah. Thank you to the audience for, uh, for listening. And uh, tomorrow, I mean, on the day that we're filming this, tomorrow we have our rally, Teens Against Gender Mutilation, that we'll be doing here on Cape Cod. You know, our mutual friend, Hannah, Hannah Faulkner from Tennessee, she did the same one. Now we're, we uh, wanted to invite you up here to Massachusetts. So we're really glad to have you. And uh, we're excited to share your story with our community. And we, we want to get the word out. We want to, you know, 
speak truth into the culture and you're, and you're helping us do that. So thanks so much. And thank you. And thank you guys all for tuning in. Uh, this is Chloe Cole and I'm Sam Mealy with Turning Point USA on Cape Cod. God bless. <laughs>